You are now checked in to Stand Up New York Labs. Oh, yeah. I'm on size after a festival tour. Hello guys, welcome back to Free Speech. We're at the Stand Up Labs up on the Upper West Side. And I'm nervous today because my guest is my idol. I feel like I'm meeting David Lee Roth or something. Um, she's probably best known as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs under Reagan. Also a speechwriter for Casper Weinberger when he was the Secretary of Defense. But... That is just really where you cut your chops. You're now known as the primary expert on communications and foreign policy, as far as I'm concerned, in America. Oh, well, that sounds like a really good opening. (laughs) I'm glad I came. I know KT from Fox News in the hallways where the left sort of sees Fox as these uh, conservative drones, but I think they'd all be surprised how lively and boisterous the discussions are in the hallway and in the green room. Yeah, I mean, not only in the green room, but Fox News um, and Roger Ailes, my boss and my idol, uh, (laughs) has made a real point of saying, you know, all views are represented. If you look at other networks, it's usually just one view, and that's the far left. But Fox has a raucous conversation and discussion between left, right, center, up, down, and so that's one of the reasons I find really exciting to be there, because it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, and I don't, I just interviewed a bunch of people today on the street about Fox, and they all had a lot of vitriolic things to say we were by NYU, and none of them had watched it. Yeah, right. They see the clips on Daily Show where it's framed to just look biased, and then they say <laughs> it's biased. It's frustrating. They'll all beat us eventually, Gavin. <laughs> yeah, they got the numbers. Yeah. I remember seeing uh, Lou Dobbs chasing Ann Coulter. They were having an argument in a nice way, like yeah. a, a spirited debate. And he says, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Ann Coulter wants higher taxes. And he followed her all the way to the makeup chair and stayed there. And they were yelling at each other from makeup chair to Dobbs. And he goes, you've got to get on my show and explain this. Yeah, did she? Yes, she did. And they had a fight for half the show. Yeah, well, that's a very, taxes are a really big thing for <laughs> Ann Coulter and for Lou Dobbs. Yeah. So well done. Anne doesn't mind. She can afford more tax. Maybe that's why she's not so anti-tax. She is, though. Sorry. See how nervous I am? (laughs) Um, But my expertise is not taxes, and it's not arguing in the green room. It's foreign policy and national security. Well, we're going to get into a heated argument today. Good. Let's go for it. Violent. (laughs) Um, Actually, before I get into that, though, another thing you probably don't want to talk about. What, when I first fell in love with you, uh, it was at Red Eye. so good. Yeah. <laughs> on Red Eye. Uh-huh. And there was three young blondes that had just spent two hours getting done up. And you were talking about your grandchildren. or They came up. And one of them said, you're a grandmother? Now, it may have had an overtone of compliments to it. You're a grandmother. You look so young. But I sensed a sort of a passive-aggressive little stab. Like you're that old? <laughs> Yeah, it was a little like, <laughs> I know I'm so breathing. pretty, I'm going to throw you a bone, a compliment bone from the pretty in crowd or something, you know? No, actually, I've had just the opposite experience. I oh, mean, maybe really? That was your interpretation, but I've got to say, I, um, especially the young women at Fox uh, treat me like I'm a mentor and a, and a role model. I mean, when I came up in the world, I worked in the Nixon administration in the 1970s, and women didn't have those kinds of jobs. I mean, women, I graduated from college, and I was expected to be a secretary. Um, A man would graduate from college, probably a less 
impressive college and a lesser degree, and man, he was going to be my boss. Well, you went so. below secretary. You were the assistant to the secretary. <laughs> well, Your secretary's kind of secretary. assistant. <laughs> okay, well, then maybe the, the, the construct is that's generally seen as a position for the woman to say, yeah, I'm an old lady, and I know, I've been around the block, and to be sort of humble, and you barked out, I'm a matriarch, baby. <laughs> I do. I have five children and five grandchildren. That is inspiring for you to be so, you know, forth, like, I'm a matriarch, baby. It's We're living in a culture now where it's not cool for women to have kids, and it's seen a lot to a lot of feminists, and even mm. a lot of sort of CEO types as selling out or what we you have this final opportunity we finally broke through the glass ceiling and you're gonna waste it on children you know it's funny um, I got the honor to have the woman I was named woman of the year um, by the American Conservative Union's Claire Booth Lou Society and it's it's the big conservative Republican woman's award and so I gave the speech um, to a group of you know hundreds of young women and one of the questions at the end was well what do I say to women on my college campus who tell me exactly what you said. Oh, you're a sellout if you want to get married and have kids. And he said, well, what, you know, you've had a career, you've got this great education, you're at Fox News, you've got children, got a 30-year happy marriage, what's your answer? And I said, well, you know, look at them and just say, do you really want to be happy? <laughs> because happiness is to have a full life. And so you bet. I mean, I took 15 years off to be a stay-at-home mom. And when I made the decision to do it, I was really nervous because I'd always worked, and I had a big job in Washington at the end of the Reagan administration, and I didn't know any women who had had big jobs and then done the mommy track. I knew plenty of women who had stayed home, raised kids, and been moms, and I knew some women who had had big careers, but I didn't know anybody who had done both. And Sandra Day O'Connor was my neighbor. Now, she was the first woman on the Supreme Court. And I'd gone to her confirmation hearings, and President Reagan um, nominated her, and I went to her confirmation hearings. And so she was my role model idol. I worshipped her. And so at the grocery store, I said, she didn't really know me. She just knew me glancingly at the grocery store. And so I said, Justice O'Connor, can I ask you a question? Yeah, I'm making this big life decision, and I can't decide, should I get married and give up my career and move to New York and maybe have kids, or should I just keep working? And she looked at me and she said, well, you know, I took a few years off to get married and have kids and raise my boys, and I was a lawyer, and I was the you know, first woman lawyer and almost in her law firm. And she said, at the end of the day, didn't hurt my career too much. Wow. So it was really good advice, and I took it. Well, there's a possibility here that we are ignoring how many women decide they don't want to go back. I mean, well, sure. if it's not a huge job, if you're not in the White House or curing cancer, shaping a life, you might ju just go, uh, this is better. Like, my wife worked doing fashion PR, and she uh -huh. said, I'm definitely going back after these kids are old enough for school. And then they got old enough, she went, actually, this is uh, more fulfilling. I think I'm needed more here. The great thing about being a woman today, and I say this to my daughters, is you have a choice. You know, my mom's generation didn't have a choice. You know, you're a mom. Right. Or if you wanted a career, you could be a nurse, you could be a teacher, be a secretary but probably wouldn't you would probably quit that job when you got married and had kids well you should thing, <laughs> well we don't need the secretaries that's well, why like, I as think a we need secretaries of state but anyway as uh, a sexist uh, we're coming at this from different perspectives but. I'm a sexist who says the great thing is you have a choice and you can right. have a career you can have no career you could be married and have kids you could not be married and have yeah kids. but it's not this it doesn't apply to every single woman I think you 
women should be discouraged from the you can have it all thing right. because it takes a very particular kind of woman who can take 15 years off and then get back on and kick ass. You'll see more and more of it. Uh, I think that as more and more women have different experiences and different careers, you'll see that there's a lot more a la carte dining in the women's movement. Really? Mm. I just think of Barbara Corcoran, the the one woman mm. who they said she's the one who shouldn't have had kids. And then she even changed her mind. And with fertility drugs, she had to spend half a million bucks mm. making those kids. Those are expensive little kids. <laughs> so Well, it's great. It's great to have options and choices. And I do actually speak to a lot of women's groups, especially young women, as I mentioned. And one of the things I say is, you know, look, you're going to probably feel really guilty. For probably a 15-year period, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel guilty. I should be working, and I'm not. I'm staying home, and I'm doing Legos with the kids. Or you're thinking, gosh, I'm working, but the kids are at home doing Legos without me. They're not going to end up being, I'm not being a good mother. And if you choose not to have children, well, then you're thinking, well, have I missed something? You know, the bottom line is you're going to feel guilty because you can't do it all at the same time. But you know what? That's a lot better than feeling frustrated. So I'll take guilt anytime. And I felt plenty guilty and, you know, still feel guilty, but that's... Can we agree you should be with them until they start going to school? I think you should be whatever works for you. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I don't want that. I want you to tell these women that you can only have it all if you're as, Im- is, if you're as incredible as I am. But if you're mediocre, don't... If you're, or if no, your calling isn't say, impressive. No, no. One thing I would say is for me, I couldn't do it all at the same time. Oh, okay. I couldn't balance them all, but that's just for me. Other women don't have that option and that choice. So, no, I think whatever you're going to choose to do, embrace it and do it, and no regrets. I disagree. I think it goes incredible job, like doctor, you know, fighting cancer, in the White House, stuff like that. Then mom, housewife, mom, housewife. And then below that is fashion PR, secretary, marketing. That is so sexist. Is you're saying that this job isn't as important as that job? Yes, I I totally agree. Disagree. There's obviously a hierarchy of jobs. Stand-up comedian and secretary of defense. Right. Sometimes they're the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've established... One's not very funny. (laughs) We've established that your job uh, was incredibly powerful, but I want to get some gossip. What was Reagan like? Ooh, Reagan was the best. You know, the great thing about Reagan was... um, And I used to write speeches. And so when Reagan was going to give a speech on foreign policy stuff, that was the State Department would write that. I was at the Pentagon. So when Reagan was going to give a speech about military defense, I would write that speech. And then the president would, you know, would go through his speech writing staff and he'd make a lot of changes. Reagan actually took his speeches very seriously. He thought that was an opportunity to make policy. It wasn't just throwaway words. If he was going to say it, he was going to mean it. Um, One of the things that I was most honored to work on was the Star Wars speech where President Reagan said, it was a speech about defense spending and why the United States needed to have a strong military. But in the speech, he also said, but, you know, nuclear weapons are, we want to get away from those. We want to get to the point where we can defend ourselves against nuclear weapons. So he challenged the scientific community to come up with a way to do it. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. It was a long dream. Uh, We're probably getting closer to where we could get to that point, but at the same time, the world's getting more dangerous, but that's all diversion. The great thing about Reagan was he had a series of core principles, and he didn't vary. He didn't get distracted. He he did not get distracted about getting into a war in the Middle East that we couldn't win. He didn't get distracted about um, ab- ab- other things that would have diverted his attention. His main goal in foreign policy, which was my gig, was take down the Soviet Union. And right. so he... All the other stuff was important, 
but I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to keep my eye on the main event. And most presidents, or I think it's good advice to any executive, CEO, whatever, is to keep your eye on the main event. Don't sweat the small stuff. And if you get the main thing done, the other stuff falls into place. Right. Did he ever? Did he come up with that line to call spending uh, like a drunken sailor? To say the government spends like a drunken sailor is an insult to, to the, the drunken sailors. sailor because he spends his own money. <laughs> Actually, most of those lines Reagan came up with himself. Wow. It wasn't some guy on the speechwriting staff. It was Reagan. Well, most of the listeners here are liberals and probably see him as this bumbling buffoon. Yeah, wrong. So we'll have to tackle those stereotypes. Uh, one thing I was always confused by is I believe he believed in aliens. You mean space creatures? Yeah. He saw that as a potential threat and thought we should be prepared. Well, I don't know. They saw it as a potential threat, but I think it's, you know, it's a little self-centered to think we're the only life form in the universe. Mathematically, it's probable if the universe yeah. is infinite. Okay, that one's knocked out of the sky. What about, um, this is a biggie now. So the general understanding amongst a sort of radical black community, interstate community, is that the CIA flooded the hood with drugs to keep the black man down and to incarcerate the working class. The evidence they used for that is this uh, Iran-Contra guy, the uh, Nicaraguan, mm -hmm. who was supplying uh, cocaine to Freeway Rick Ross, was his street name, and... Uh, the CIA turned a blind eye because he was taking the profits and sending them to the Contras. Mm -hmm. Now, that was just California, but somehow that has spread out across America and excuses all drug use. But let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that was a little egregious in California to turn a blind eye to that massive amount of cocaine coming in and going to Nicaragua. But do I think that the whole drug, drug epidemic in the United States is a result of the conservative movement trying to keep African Americans down? I think that's just nonsense. Nonsense. You know, but I mean, look at what the anybody who's had a drug issue with your family, their children, or you know, nobody wants that to happen to anybody. And the thought that somehow we're going to enslave part of the population by getting them hooked on drugs. No, I think that the drug epidemic has been such a crisis in America for decades that that's, um, I would reject that notion. Well, it's a, it is a, a lame cop-out to say it, it was forced oh, so upon therefore, me. So therefore I have it. the right to yeah. do it. Or I'm, I'm, look, but you know, here, Gavin, the thing that makes me mad about anything in society today is the idea that I'm not responsible, that it's somebody else's fault, I'm just the victim. I had an unhappy childhood, or I had disadvantages, or I had this, or I had that. Whatever your problem is, suck it up and change <laughs> your life. If, if it, whatever the misery is that you inherited or you were subjected to, do you want to have that be the rest of your life and define the rest of your life? Or do you want to say, you know, that was really lousy and creepy and terrible, but it's made me a stronger person? Because frankly, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and then you've achieve and rise above it so i victimhood i think has been just a scourge on society for decades so yeah well you can see why I'm it's tempting it. if you do a race and you're done in five minutes and someone says you know you're wearing lead shoes you could have done that race way faster but those shoes they forced you to wear and you'd go yeah 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 somebody else's uh, fault i'm Not gonna mine. run with I that taking those shoes i'm off even better than i am yeah. yeah but i just the two big blemishes i find on on reagan's career are the contras uh, there's Iran-Contra and this turning a blind eye to drug dealing. One thing, just 
that I don't understand is why not just give the Contras money? Why did they have to go through Iran and Because it was congressional legislation. Um, it's saying that we couldn't give the Contras, it was a Nicaragua rebel group, we couldn't give them arms, weapons, equipment, money to fight um, against the, their government. And so there was this sort of workaround where, uh, which I don't think President Reagan was intimately involved with at all. I think, you know, again, I think his eye was on the main event, take down the Soviet Union. And that was, so it was Ali North's problem. Um, well, I think Ollie North and other people were did that. But again, I look back and say, what's more important in this greater scheme of things was the defeat of communism, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and, and freeing tens of millions, I mean, hundreds of millions of people to pursue their own destiny. Yeah. Well, a hot thing with the kids now is full communism. They're not making any bones about it. They're saying, I will not be satisfied until we have full communism. Where? There's a new album by a band called the Downtown Boys, and that's the name of the album. And they, they hold up these little things, these college students, full communism until we have complete equality. So it used to be being called a Marxist or a socialist was an insult. Now that's an insult because it's not enough. It's not enough. You have to go further left. Yeah, but it is, it's, I think it's, uh, it's safe <laughs> the to say thing, that. You know, the thing that's so great about that is the people who want to say that, if they actually went to communist countries, right, they yeah. wouldn't be allowed to say that. Yeah, the Downtown Boys wouldn't exist. <laughs> yeah, no, they would be... It's Locked arguable, up, up, though, down. that Reagan ended communism. It wasn't just Reagan, but Reagan understood a fundamental flaw in communism, Marxist-Leninism, um, which is that he understood that the economy just was never going to work, and so ultimately it would destroy itself from within, the same way that Marx, when he wrote, said, well, capitalism would destroy itself. <laughs> Reagan understood that Marx probably... Sitting in the, well, I'm not sure that Reagan understood this part of it, but I studied Marx when I was in graduate school, and he, Karl Marx sat in, the, in a museum in London. Never had a job. Never had a job, never had friends, didn't get along with his family, and yet was talking about how people react in human nature. He didn't know any people. He didn't have any <laughs> friends. So he got human nature wrong, and he, he really misunderstood that people want to better themselves. They will work hard if it's for them or their family, and if it's not, eh, not going to work so hard. So the whole notion of communism just isn't going to work. It, it's a self-defeating every time it's been tried, and it's in, in its full-blown system has collapsed within itself and Reagan understood that and so what Reagan said was okay I understand the fundamental flaw of this system is not only that people aren't free but that their economy is going to collapse I'm just going to rush it along mm. and so he took a number of steps so that the communist system really collapsed from within and so it was a, a regime change uh, not because we sent in the marines but we, we manipulated events so that the people themselves looked up and said, we don't want this system. When I was um, in, the, in the middle, late 1980s, I was with a, some European diplomats, so Eastern Europeans, so guys who had been under communism. And I said, well, you know, what was the tipping point for you? When, when, when did you guys wake up and realize we didn't like communism, we we're going to throw everything? And he said, well, you know, there was a TV set. There was a picture, and I remember the picture, of a, a, play, a town in the former Soviet Union, and there, it was a coal mining town, and the miners were all huddled around an old television set with rabbit ears. And this man said to me, the diplomat said to me, you know, it was when we finally got TV and access to TV. Wow. And you know what we watched? Dallas. <laughs> the 1980s with the big hair and the big cars. And everybody was rich, and he said, we in, you know, Poland, Hungary, Yugoslavia, the Czech Republic, we looked at that, and we said, that's what we want. 
And it was the ability for them to see what the rest of the world had that they did not have, which is what caused those people to rise up and change the regime themselves. Well, you think that would be our best weapon against extremist Islam, is Rambo and pretty girls. Take down the cyber wall. You know, take down the cyber wall. It's affecting countries like Iran. And as far as the dis- the people who were being sort of recruited online, radical Islamists who were recruited online, let them see what it really looks like. Yeah, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue could do a lot more than a dr- <laughs> you have drones <laughs> dropping those down. Exactly. I, I uh, My dad, by the way, says that it was him. That it was Reagan or no, your father? Jimmy McInnes. He says, see those when we nuclear subs? That was a bluff, right? And they're coming down here. They're threatening us with nuclear submarines, right? We, Computing Devices Canada, CDC, we developed sonars that could tell you exactly who's in the sub. You could see if he's smoking a cigarette or writing down a note. So we surely saw there was no nuclear weapons there. Called their bluff, and that was the first domino. Oh, well, that's another, that's an interesting alternative vision of history. Yeah, it's called Drunk History. <laughs> it's a popular show. Uh, we were in the green room once, and we were talking about Ukraine, and... Uh, you told me about these little green men. Yes. That Russia uses to. And you thought we were still on the drunk theory of history, right? The little green, <laughs> yeah, little leprechauns. Green but little green men are not fictional. You don't no. see them when you're drunk. They are Russian. Russia sending in unmarked military guys, yeah. no patches or anything, right. to facilitate a revolution. Yeah. So when Russia comes along, they say, "Look, we're not invading Ukraine. We're trying to help this revolution. That's chaos." Yeah. Is that what happened? That's exactly. All right. So when I was in Ukraine and I met with some of the intelligence and military people, I said, so, you know, people are saying that this is a Russian invasion um, and others are saying, no, there are no Russian tanks moving across the border. And they said, well, it's the little green men. The little green men are Russian military. They take off the patches. They have the tanks. They paint on the side of the tanks. So it doesn't say Russian anything. It says nothing. And they go into the areas along the Soviet periphery, the Russian periphery, in this case, eastern Ukraine, and try to whoop everybody up. And it's so to the outside observer, it's, it looks like these are locals who are really angry about the Ukraine government. It gives Putin and the Russians plausible deniability. He says, those aren't my guys. And when pressed on it, when they, a few were captured and they actually were Russians, he said, well, they were on vacation. <laughs> so they were shaking. They were, you know, they when you have echo vacations where you go to the rainforest in right, Costa Rica yeah. and you do goodies. This was like I'm on vacation. I'm a Russian military, but I'm going to go on vacation in Eastern Europe and see what I can get up to. Well, I saw a very haunting photograph I talk about a lot on this show where I saw pictures of Russian soldiers and they were joined by French militiamen who had just gone down there for some sort of adventure. Yeah. And soldiers of fortune. Yeah. It, yeah, and it was cool. If you if you are that person, why are you with our enemy? Wouldn't you want to be with our side? Ukraine or someone? It <laughs> seems bizarre that it's cool to be pro enemy, which sort of brings us into this Western jihadi thing. Uh, I feel like Putin is, is sees Obama as a soft target, an easy target, mm-hmm. as does Islam, and it, it, his his ability to shoot down a plane. With, I don't know how many different nations are on that plane, something like 25 different people from different 25 different countries, or maybe mm-hmm. it was 34. He shot them down, and it just sort of vanished as a news story. What happened with that? Well, it didn't vanish. It was it seized people's imaginations, but it, there was no real conclusion to it. There was no real 
proof that it was who was it. It was one side said it was the other guys. This is the plane that went down in eastern Ukraine. Um, you know, I, I think that it was yet another example of Russian adventure. You know, the Russians seem to be getting away with an awful lot. Yeah. And nobody can... Imagine America shot down a passenger plane. No, and we then... have actually in the past, but it's done been inadvertently and we've, we've paid a price. Right. Well, we never even had the black box for that Ukraine plane. No, I don't think it was ever found. What would a, a what would your kind of president do? Reagan. Yeah. Well, I mean, it had happened in the Reagan administration, and Reagan retaliated. He'd have the black. Well, I mean, it was it, it was not a plane that was shot down, but there, for example, in the Reagan era, um, Gaddafi of Libya bombed some nightclubs in in Germany, where American military men would and women and families would go. And so Reagan said, that was an attack against the United States. I'm going to carry out an attack against Gaddafi's headquarters. And he did. As a result of that, nobody heard from Gaddafi for a good decade. Um, <laughs> but I guess the fear from the Obama administration was, this is a bigger giant than Gaddafi. This is the, this is, the other half of the world. I mean, you know, but here, here's the problem. I mean, the Obama administration, through, it wants to withdraw from the world, right? It thinks that anything George W. Bush did was wrong, so therefore they're going to do the polar opposite, and that's going to be right. Usually the opposite of crazy is still crazy. Um, but they thought that if a Bush did this, we're going to not do that. So if Bush was uh, fighting in Iraq, we're going to get out of Iraq. If Bush wasn't doing a good job in Afghanistan, we're going to double down in Afghanistan. Oh. And so as a result, I think we've had a foreign policy that hasn't had any real um, – it's just been confused. And at every single step, our allies have looked at us and said, where are you guys? You know, and we're, We can't count on you. And our adversaries have said, open season – Let's get what we can get now while the getting's good. And so you've seen the Chinese do aggressive things. You've seen the Russians with Putin do aggressive things. You've certainly seen in Europe, in, um, in the Middle East, our adversaries doing aggressive things. And the United States doesn't seem to do anything. Now, President Obama says, well, I don't want, you know, this was, we're going to lead from behind now. Um, or, that sounds uh, inspiring, doesn't it? Well, yeah, right. Just push the ass cheeks, Well, I guess, and what's happened is that we've, you know, we've been left behind. Um, but... The President Obama seems to think that leading from the front is equating with military force. You know, we're going to lead from the front because we're going to have a war. Well, leading from the front doesn't necessarily mean military. In fact, if you're good at it, you don't use the military. Reagan right. showed that. Reagan didn't go to war with anybody. One short little quick war, Grenada. We were in, we were out in about 10 days. I mean, what about you just say, hey, Russia, we're going in there. We uh, will be armed, I'm afraid, mm -hmm. or maybe we'll send in the UN with their white helmets, but we're going to get that black box, and we're going to conduct an investigation, and I don't want any trouble. However, if you touch a hand on any of those soldiers, we're coming in full force. The problem with that is you have to, if you're going to make a threat, you've got to back it up. So if you're going to say, here's my red line, here's what I'm going to do, you have to be willing to do it, and I don't think anybody was willing to do it. I would have done it differently okay. and said to the, to the Russians, you're mucking around in Eastern Europe. You're in Paul and in Ukraine. You've got your eyes on the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. You've grabbed Crimea as it is now. Here's the here's the thing. You have an economy that's collapsing. You I have squandered like that. What? I can topple it absolutely like that. You have spent the windfall profits you've had from oil and natural gas prices that have been high. 
for the last decade or so, you have failed to invest in your infrastructure. So at this point, the only thing you have to sell that anybody wants to buy is your oil, your natural gas, maybe your weapons if they can't buy anybody else's. Nobody wants to buy Russian computers. Who (laughs) wants to buy Russian wristwatches? Who wants to buy Russian fashions? Who wants to buy Russian cars? I love their Russian cars. Those are fun. Nobody. Easy to repair. (laughs) So you say to them, here's how we're going to bankrupt you. We are going to push, we are going to frack. We are going to push the price of oil and natural gas down. You are going to be bankrupt. You are not going to be able to make payroll next year. You have to import foodstuffs. You aren't going to have the hard currency to do that. And as, as a result, then we'll talk about how adventurous you want to be if you're busy worrying about your necks and keeping your jobs. That's how I would have dealt with him. I would have said, look, Mr. Putin, we do this the easy way or the hard way for the next 10 years. You want to be in power for 10 more years or so? You're not going to be in power for 10 more years if you're economy collapses. We can push your economy to that brink. On the other hand, if you want to make nice with us, if you want to cooperate with us, if you want to work together with us to defeat radical Islam, if you want to work together with us in a number of different ways, we can do that. The deal is going to be, though, you keep your mitts off of Ukraine, let the Ukrainians and the Poles and the Estonians and the Latvians and the Lithuanians decide their own destiny. We're not going to muck around with them. You don't muck around with them. But if we cooperate in that way, we can have a very good relationship for the next decade. It's your choice. We win either way. Right. Well, and the choice Obama made was to be ridiculed. And didn't, I think... Well, Obama remember, wouldn't, but he wouldn't. I mean, he, he could have crashed their economies. He wouldn't do it. Right. But by not taking any action, yeah. he became the laughingstock. And I remember that member of the Russian parliament tweeting out a picture of Putin on a horse and Obama playing with a kitty cat. Yeah. Now, when the administration is mocking the president, you know he's lost all credibility. Yeah. And here's the thing. When, when and this was not Obama, this was George W. Bush, had Putin, Putin saw George Bush's dog. It was called Barney. And so then Bush goes back to Russia and he visits Putin. And Putin has a really big dog, right? Like with big teeth and mastiff kind of dog. And Putin says, ha, 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 my dog's stronger and tougher than Bernie. <laughs> and what, what Bush should have said or what any American should have said, you know, I think you've got a point. Your dog is bigger and tougher. Thank goodness my dog's smarter. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how when you were talking like that, I was pretending that you were a president. And that wasn't inconceivable. <laughs> I mean, you went for the Republican uh, governorship. No, in, I ran for the U.S. Senate in New York, Republican side. And if you won that, you could have been going up against Hillary. Right. Hillary's staring at the White House right now. That could have been you. Isn't, though. And it may not be Hillary. We'll see. Yeah, well, it definitely won't be Hillary. I think, I mean, women are terrible voters. You could throw me that. <laughs> They vote with their heart. (laughs) They're like young people. They just go, Obama was elected by young people because he's cool. Black people voted for him because he's black. And women voted for him because he's cool and Uh, nice and talked about hope and change. Yeah. Well, the decisive factor in all the elections since 2000 has been suburban women voters. Right. And they are terrible at their jobs. We, you have the power to discourage them from voting. You could do a speech and say, (laughs) look, ladies, let's stick to what we know. I know politics. You don't. Stay away from the ballot box. Can you do that for See, us? See, now, the great thing about Reagan, and, I, and, and he really was my hero. I've worked for several presidents, and, and, and I've got to say that Reagan, to me, was the most inspirational because if Reagan thought you didn't agree with him, 
He wasn't going to boss you around. He was going to convince you why you were wrong and why he was right. And the great example I have is, and I heard this last week, when former President Clinton had heart problems. He, um, Mrs. Clinton and the staff was looking around for a New York cardiologist to do the surgery. And supposedly, they asked several cardiologists, well-known cardiologists in New York, and one of them thought he was going to get in the car, drive from Long Island back into New York City and do the cardiac surgery. And then he got a call saying, well, we're going to have a Democrat instead. Wow. Whoa. But it was turned out to be a very good doctor. Obviously, it went very well. Um, on the other hand, when Ronald Reagan was shot in 1981, and there he is going into the emergency room. Nobody's saying, we only want Republican doctors to operate on the president. Reagan looked up and said, I hope you guys are all Republicans. And with a twinkle in his eyes, he was almost dying. And the doctor said, oh, Mr. President, we're all Republicans today. Now, why do I say that story? To me, it's a great example of two presidents and two attitudes. One right. guy says, we're not going to do anything unless it's a partisan Docked cardiologist, and the other guy says, "You know what? I don't care what party you are. I'm going to convince you that I'm right and we're saving." That yeah. sums up the the two approaches. It reminds me of what Dennis Prager says that I think he stole from Charles Krauthammer, where um, he said, "They think we're evil. We just think they're wrong." Yeah. And I I go to CNN a lot, and I don't see people arguing in the hallways or having heated discussions in the green rooms. Everyone's in their little cubicle. Yeah. Whereas with Fox, no interaction. There's all this interaction and yelling, and, and it's exciting. It's fun. Yeah. yeah, and you want I, there's this misnomer that, and it's a problem with partisan politics where it becomes the Dallas Cowboys and that's your team. Yeah, and there's that's by def <laughs> that's the definition of ignorance when you have your dogma and you can't Listen. stray from it. The way you learn is you're wrong. It's the same as being an entrepreneur. The way you make money is you fail and yeah. you lose. It's it's science. You work and work and work on this theory for maybe years. Mm -hmm. Then you hit a dead end and you go, this was all a waste. I was wrong this entire time. And you have to throw it all in the garbage and move forward. And move forward. But that's why America is a great nation. We, because what you're talking about, that's the ability to recreate and reinvent yourself. And we do that. And we are the only country that does that. So, for example, we were farmers, right, at the founding of the nation. That wasn't working out. We had an industrial revolution. That didn't work out. We had the Rust Belt in the 1970s, 1980s. So instead of saying, well, we're an empire that's finished, we recreated ourselves again. We created the internet. We created computers. We have the ability in the United States to, if you fail, pick yourself back up, redo it again, learn from your mistakes, and do something different. In most countries, you're still continuing to make the mistakes. Right. If it doesn't work like you just said at the beginning of our conversation, your conclusion is, well, I didn't succeed because it was somebody else's fault. Right, yeah, yeah. If it, the, You see that with anti-Semitism. Everything is the Jews' fault, and if it rains on their birthday, it must have been the Jews. And this is the same way they get mad at poor Americans for blaming the rich. And the privileged, oh, it didn't work out for me because the rich have, are keeping all the money. You know, real successful people don't talk like that. They're too busy. They're too busy kind of learning from their mistakes, picking themselves up and trying again. But it sounds like you can call a president un-American if he thwarts this innate characteristic of reinvention. And part of reinvention would be fracking and taking oil from Canada. That seems to be a natural evolution. We're having a war in the Middle East for oil. We've got unethical oil, as Ezra Levant, my friend Ezra, puts it, where we're getting oil from nations that throw gays off buildings, mm. stone women to death for being gang raped. You want to talk ethical oil? Get it from Canada. They don't do anything to homosexuals but kiss them on the lips and have parades. <laughs> 
That oh, that oil can come down. We can frack. We Obama. I mean, uh, Putin loses his power. The Middle East lose their power. Yeah, and we're king. And it seems like he's standing. Our president is standing in our way. Well, that's why I think we're coming up to 2016. Is going to be a a real turning point. And everybody says, oh, the next election is so important. Yeah, yeah. But this one actually is, and it'll be very it'll be very similar to what the election was in 1980, where the prevailing opinion in the United States in the late 1970s was America was an empire in decline. Um, we were getting pushed around around the world. American diplomats were held hostage in Iran. The economy was double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment. And people had lost confidence in who we were. I mean, the president, Carter, at the time said, Americans are in a malaise. They've kind of right. given up. Yep. And so I think we're there again. You know, the economy isn't recovering. We're getting pushed around all over the world. And the people, people have really lost confidence in America's ability to lead. So then we're kind of making up stuff like we're going to lead from behind. You know, leading from behind. Nobody ever looks back to say, where am I supposed to go, boss? <laughs> but we have a series of things that have happened in about the last three years that give me great confidence. Um, one is cheap energy from fracking. Do it safely. Make sure that they're safe, you know, that there are protections, safeguards, environmentally correct, but do it. The second thing, though, is that, do you know what, it, do you have an iPhone? Yes. Okay, everybody has an iPhone, right? The iPhone didn't exist eight years ago, and now everybody in the world has an iPhone, wants an iPhone. There are about 10 iPhone-like technologies that are just ready almost to be mass-produced. And any one of those is all, they're all created in the United States. They could all be manufactured in the United States, and the whole world will want them. And so with the right decisions that we make in 2016 to take the handcuffs off of cheap energy, take the handcuffs off of investment coming back into these new technologies, and taking the handcuffs off of these new industries, we could be on the verge of a great American century. And it's stuff like, you know, Star Wars sounding kind of stuff. It's like 3D printing, or it's like wearable medical devices. You know, your GP is going to be replaced by the thing you're going to wear on your wrist. It's things like nanotechnology, bioengineering. It's going to be things like you find out you have cancer. Well, instead of getting chemotherapy, you're going to get a kind of Medicaid, kind of chemotherapy based on the kind of cancer you have based on your kind of DNA. And we're all going to be able to figure that out. There are about a dozen of these iPhone-like super-duper technologies that we really need to uh, make the decision to allow to happen. And I think the United States is... We're going to have another 20 leave years. Leave us alone and we can do this. It yeah, reminds me of... take the handcuffs off. Stossel was talking about this cure for blindness that would have been the cochlear implant of uh -huh. the eyes. Right. But the FDA was, was holding them down for 10 years before they could move forward on it and start using it. Huh. And investors just go, I'm not waiting 10 years for my money yeah. to get back. I'll do real estate. Thanks. Yeah, right. Exactly. Again, yet we have a number of those technologies that are just begging to be developed. Well, the thing that scares me, though, about Carter versus Obama is... The, I don't see the media as in the tank for Carter as they were for Obama. And when mm. you say, you know, unemployment's bad and the, the economy's doing poorly, Obama has twisted that into, well, it was plummeting like this, and now it's plummeting like that. Yeah. Or <laughs> all these people drop out of the workforce, so he counts that as new jobs. And he does all this sort of... Well, there's a lot of blue smoke and mirrors and manipulating so much smoke the and data. Mirrors. And then it's just accepted as facts now, because major news sources are doing it. MSNBC and CNN are yeah, saying all this... Yeah, but who's watching them? Fake Gavin, good news. nobody's yeah. watching them. Good They're all point. watching you and me on Fox News. <laughs> well, <laughs> suburban women are watching them, and that's the, the fear I have, this tidal wave of moms... Watching soccer moms. Watching MSNBC yeah. and saying, nah, everybody's watching Fox News.
That scares me. Well, the other th- the other thing that scares me too, and I don't want to poop on your parade because I love the idea of a new industrial revolution yeah. when we have the freedom. And it, it's true. We saw it in Britain, where Britain bar- didn't really have a middle class before Thatcher. Yes. She came along, the, and the scary part is the working class didn't even want to ascend. But she came, ripped off the handcuffs, and Britain exploded. They still yeah. don't see it that way for some reason, but Britain exploded, and Everyone was there was a middle class. Exact same with Reagan. Exact same time, and he was he was dealt a crappy deck just like Obama was, and he took off the handcuffs and freed them. So yes, the media brainwashing is a fear, but I, I really do believe that you're right, and we're on another Thatcher Reagan cusp. But the other fear I have, and this is bigger, is how it's become cool to hate America. And there's you a, mean by Americans or by Americans, country? and I I. You look at all these radical Islamists. You look at, I think you talked once about the number of uh, British and American passports that are in fighting mm-hmm. against us in Syria right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of those, those French soldiers in Russia. Yeah. And I think of, of all these, every time you look at an attack from London bombing to even 9-11, and you find all these people with British and American accents. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost every attack on our soil, including 9-11 and since then, has been British accents, American accents, American names. Well, not September 11th. That was well. One of the main architects was this British guy who was freed when they when they uh, took Air India hostage. Really? Yeah, he was in jail I for that. They were all Saudi. They they no, but he was one of the the sort of architects. Oh, okay. One of uh, Osama called him his son at one point. And he had a British accent, and he had been taking hostages for years before mm-hmm. 9-11, but he was released on a hostage release thing. So I, th- I didn't think 9-11 was included either, but attack after attack, you look up the names, you look up their history, and you see them playing soccer at a local school in, yeah. in Bromley. Yeah, what, and why are they? What, I mean, and why? Yeah. It's, a, it's a cultural shift. You know, there's mm-hmm. this, it's cool to be un-American. It's, it, strangely enough, it's not cool to hate the president. That's racist. But <laughs> it's not cool to wear an, an American flag. It's cool to, to, I mean, we just had something, the Eric Shepard Challenge, where you do a moonwalk on the flag. This is because mm-hmm. the cops are killing black people. So you jump up and down on the flag. That's in now. Ah, I think, it. you know, what's in goes out. Yeah? I'm not that worried about well, it. Well, don't you think Osa- uh, Osama, don't you think Obama is largely responsible for this? I mean... Well, I think a lot of people, not myself, because I didn't vote for him, but people who did... There was some percentage of them who thought, you know, this is really great. We're going to be a post-racial society now. And America, we want to put that ball behind us. We want to get on with our future. And yet poll after poll after poll, now from whether it's polling African Americans or white Americans or Hispanic Americans or any kind of Americans, they all say, well, look, we feel that we are a more racist society. Yeah than we were before President Obama was elected. That, I think, is a real stain on his presidency. He, he said, vote for me, I'm the, you know, I'm not red, white, and blue. I'm, I'm not red or blue, I'm red, white, and blue. And yet, that's not what's happened. It was like a bait and switch. People wanted him to be the president who was a uniter, but it turned out he was the president who was a divider. I see him as his mother. He's a radical, female, single mom, communist, with a fetish for Islam. That's not even that sincere. I mean, he's obviously not a Muslim, but I don't no. think he even really likes it. He just likes that it's anti-establishment. Yeah, but that was this sort of attitude of the, you know, it's just like the leftover anti-war American thing, anti-American, anti-war, anti-Vietnam war, European socialists, we don't like America. But 
you know, it's never worked. And maybe it's still alive in on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and maybe it's still alive in some American universities. But if you look around at the rest of the world, ah. Oh, that's hard. I don't get it. That's what I like to hear. So it didn't take. No, it never has. It doesn't work. It's he's a saboteur who I mean, didn't successfully. The only successfully... communists left are the ones you've just referred to. They're <laughs> yeah. not any. They're not communists. In they may be totalitarians. They may want to have a big empire, but they're not communists. I mean, communist China. They're the most capitalist people on the planet right now. So no, communism has been an abject failure. It's a silly fad here, like ro- rollerblades. Yeah, or but guess what? Do you know anybody who rollerblades now? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I see about one a week. Um, uh, speaking of, of Islam and, and uh, Obama's relationship with it, I, I never understood why we keep talking about Iran and nuclear power. There's an argument, and Buchanan makes it all the time, that it's perfectly safe and we can do checks and balances. Okay, but why? It's like an ex-con comes out, mm-hmm. he has a reputation for dogfights, and we want to get him a pit bull. He's reformed, we trust him. Why are we talking about this? Why is why are we even risking this? What are the benefits? What do you mean, n- nuclear? Yeah, of, uh, of Iran having Iran, nuclear power. Well, they don't want nuclear power. They want nuclear weapons. Exactly, but why does it? Why are we even, even discussing the event? possibility that they should have nuclear power in the first place? Why, well, why? it's the con. It's it's saying we, we don't really want nuclear weapons. We just want nuclear power because, after all, we may be the richest um, oil and natural gas country in the world, but we need nuclear power. It, it's their it's their sham. It's their con. And the only people who believe it, I guess, are at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue. The Iranians don't believe it. Certainly, Iran's neighbors don't believe it. I think the great and the tragic legacy of the Obama administration is that he's desperate for some kind of foreign policy achievement that's worthy of his greatness. Okay. And he's going to get an Iran deal. And the deal he's going to get with Iran is that Iran will be, you know, we're going they're going to pretend to stop their nuclear program. We're going to pretend to believe them, but they are indeed are pressing on with their nuclear program and we are condoning it now why is why is it important to not have that deal because by condoning it we're allowing iran's economy to boom so iran now which is an aggressive expansionist power although it's economically broke and it doesn't have nuclear weapons an iran which is wealthy which is what will happen once the sanctions are dropped and an iran which is a threshold nuclear state will be even more expansionist even more aggressive even if that didn't threaten us it threatens everybody in that neighborhood and so you've seen in the last several weeks where the iranians I mean, the Saudis, the Emirates, the um, Bahrain, the Turks, the Egyptians have all said, if Iran is a threshold nuclear state, we're going to get ours too. So in the most dangerous part of the world, whereas we have seen with the Arab Spring, governments can topple overnight, you are going to have nuclear weapons in that mix. And when that happens, you will, for the first time since the dawn of the atomic age, have the nightmare scenario, nuclear weapons in the hands of crazy people who want to use them, and you've got them together. That's spooky. It is spooky, and I think it is. That will be the Obama legacy. Um, that takes us to that, the, which is so important then that America <laughs> revives, recreates, reinvents. Yeah, well, because maybe it's not us; it's nobody. You know, to stay optimistic, that you can try to keep out the internet for as long as you want, but the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated is going to creep through somehow, and eventually, these younger jihadists are going to see that we have a thing that you don't have. It's called fun. Yeah, <laughs> and that could be our greatest weapon. I think our greatest weapon is to tear down the cyber walls. That all of our enemies have one thing in common: 
they have taken their own people and and sort of put walls around their ability to access free speech, free assembly, or the World Wide Web. You know what we should do? Take down those cyber walls, whether it's North Korea, Iran, Russia, China. Take down the cyber walls and let their people see what the rest of the world has. And so, we don't have to worry about invading anybody. We'll just have American culture can invade them. So free speech is not only the best thing in America, it's the best thing for Absolutely. America. It's the best thing. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. Well, thank you very much, KT McFarlane. It was an honor having you on the show. Honor and a pleasure for me. Um, folks at home, you have just witnessed greatness. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you.